Well, good evening, everyone. And uh, I'm Tim Hitchens, the president of Wolfson College, and I'm delighted to welcome you all to the Ronald Syme Lecture for 2018. And also delighted to welcome our speaker tonight, Professor Kathleen Coleman, and welcome her back to Wolfson. In 2003, she gave a lecture in this series which honours Sir Ronald Syme, eminent Roman historian and Wolfson Fellow, who actually lived in the penthouse in Seablock, for those of you who know the college well, until 1989. Um, for those of you who don't know of Ronald Syme, he was clearly a quite extraordinary individual, a New Zealander who studied French, then moved to classics and to Oxford, a scholar who shunned collaboration and worked entirely alone, apart from, as his biographer put it, the solace of a cheap cigar. Um, the biographer continues, there is no great scholar of modern times of whom we know so little in personal terms, but to hear him recite Swinburne after a good dinner was to share for an evanescent moment that inner life he kept so secret. I fear it is slightly harder to be private nowadays. Professor Coleman, too, began life in the Southern Hemisphere, in her case in Rhodesia, or since Rhodes must fall present-day Zimbabwe. And she studied at the universities of Cape Town and Rhodesia. She held the chair of Latin at Trinity Dublin from 93 to 98, then moved to join the Harvard faculty, where she became a full professor in 2003, in exactly the same year she lectured here at Wolfson. Coincidence, I think not. Uh, she works on Latin poetry as well as prose authors, especially the younger Pliny. She's published extensively on the spectacles of the Roman arena, and it was no surprise that the director, Ridley Scott, appointed her chief academic consultant for the 2000 film Gladiator, though it is debatable whether her advice was reflected in the final work for the screen. Alan Ward of the University of Connecticut is reported as saying that creative artists need to be granted some poetic license, but that should not be a permit for the wholesale disregard of facts in historical fiction. Well, tonight, Professor Coleman will be talking about spectacles, this time diplomatic ones, and this time, I'm sure, with great historical accuracy. So let, us, uh, let her take us on the remarkable nine-month journey taken by the Parthian prince Tiridates, travelling to Rome to be crowned king of Armenia by the emperor Nero, but detouring on the way to the Bay of Naples. Professor Coleman, please. Good evening, and thank you very, very much for this wonderful invitation. I'm so grateful uh, to Sir Tim and Lady Hitchens and to the Wolfson community for giving me the honor of delivering this lecture. And I'm so grateful to Juliet Montgomery, whose help all along the way has been absolutely without peer. She's been so thoughtful and generous and uh, also uh, Phil Nixon, who is expert at getting people who are not wearing waistbands to hide their, their, um, um, their microphones. And um, I would like also to say how very um, heartwarming it is to 
be welcomed every time I come back to Oxford. I'm one of the people who, at the end of the DPhil, dispersed back to the colonies. But uh, the, the, the homecoming every time is, is something I cherish, so thank you for that. And I also want to say a little bit about Sir Ronald, whom I knew, um, not intimately, because no, nobody ever did, as uh, we've just heard, but it was Miriam Griffin who encouraged me when I was back here on my first sabbaticals from Cape Town to get to know him and show him some of my work. And um, I talked to Miriam about this lecture 10 days before her death by telephone. And I'm sorry she's not here. But Sir Ronald, of course, is the person we're honouring this evening. And I only want to say three things about him. Of course, the stories about Sir Ronald are legendary. But I do want to say that um, despite his brilliance and his polemicism, there was a kind of restless, almost, um, almost a kind of modesty about him. I remember him saying to me once, with tremendous frustration, and I quote, I have never published anything without a mistake in it. And I thought that was, you know, that was pretty good, coming from a great man to an extremely junior scholar. The second thing I want to say, of course, is his aphorisms. Reading Sir Ronald was like reading a continuous stream of aphorisms. Style abides. Uh, but my favorite one, which I probably shan't manage to live up to tonight, but I'm always parading to my students, is, and I quote again, it is better to be definitely wrong than tentatively right. <laughs> and the third thing I want to say about Sir Ronald is that he loved cats. And one evening in Cape Town, my cat Catiline abrogated to himself the honor of biting Sir Ronald <laughs> rather badly on his arm. And when the blood had been stenched and staunched and the salves had been applied, Sir Ronald very graciously said that Catiline had only been living up to the reputation of his namesake. <laughs> Spectacle in the Greco-Roman world refracts many different aspects of ancient society. Slavery, patronage, euagitism, punishment, fruits of empire, technical know-how, etc., etc. But we do not often think of it in connection with diplomacy. The evidence is sparse, but there are occasional hints in the ancient sources that the Hellenistic and Roman world recognized the potential of spectacle as a lever of diplomatic advantage. Augustus's treatment of the four sons of Phraates IV of Parthia is a case in point. I quote from Suetonius. On one day of a gladiatorial show, he led Parthian hostages, the first that had been sent to Rome, across the middle of the arena to the seating area and placed them above himself on the second bench. The status of these Parthians, whom their father in Parthia wanted out of the way, is somewhat ambiguous. Suetonius calls them obsides, hostages, whereas Augustus in the Res Gestae regards them as pignora of the king's amicitia with the Roman people, pledges of his friendship, 
but at all events they were not free to leave Rome of their own accord once their father had sent them there. For our purposes, it is significant that Augustus both paraded them in the arena at a gladiatorial spectacle and then seated them in the row immediately behind him. This detail comes right between Suetonius's notice of the display of a dwarf with a very loud voice who weighed only 17 pounds and a rhino, a tiger, rhino, a tiger and an enormous <coughs> snake. So it is clear that the hostages were a curiosum too, but a curiosum worthy of the best seats in the house. In this lecture, I would like to look at the theme of spectacular diplomacy with reference to one of the most extravagant events of Nero's reign, the coronation of another member of the Parthian royal house, Tiridates, as king of Armenia in AD 66. And here is Armenia lying between the Black Sea and the Caspian. And here, for orientation, is the Roman world. The coronation took place in Rome. It has attracted a great deal of scholarly attention, the coronation has. Already in the 1930s, Franz Cumont had suggested that the event was staged as an initiation ceremony to induct Nero into the cult of Mithras as a messianic instantiation of the god himself. Most recently, the event forms pretty much the climax to Ted Champlin's biography of Nero, in which he interprets Nero's entire reign as a self-directed spectacle. Scholars cull much of their evidence for Roman diplomatic strategy from the preceding century of alternating conflict and negotiations between precisely Parthia and Rome. The interval between Parthia's surrender to Augustus of the standards captured from Crassus at Carai and the coronation of Tiridates by Nero is anything but silence, since although the sources are widely scattered, they are numerous. But amid all of this scholarly industry, a curious episode that one might call the prequel to the coronation has been curiously overlooked, and so that is what I want to look at uh, in memory of Sir Ronald, who had a great interest in foreign princesses. The situation is complicated by the fact that the only notice of this event is in the epitome of Dio, book 63, by the monk Zephilinus in the 11th century. It is a crucial passage, so I will read the translation aloud while you follow it in either English or Greek. Tiridates presented himself in Rome, bringing with him not only his own sons, but also those of Vologaisus, of Pacorus, and of Monobazus. Their progress all the way from the Euphrates was like a triumphal procession. Tiridates himself was at the height of his reputation by reason of his age, beauty, family, and intelligence and his whole retinue of servants, together with all his royal paraphernalia, accompanied him. Three thousand Parthian cavalry and numerous Romans besides followed in his train. They were received by gaily decorated cities and by peoples who shouted many compliments. Provisions were furnished them, furnished them free of cost, a daily expenditure of 800,000 sesterces for their support being accordingly charged to the public treasury. This went on without change for the nine months occupied in their journey. 
The prince covered the whole distance to the confines of Italy on horseback, and beside him rode his wife, wearing a golden helmet in place of a veil, so as not to defy the traditions of her country by letting her face be seen. In Italy, he was conveyed in yoked vehicles sent by Nero and met the emperor at Neapolis, which he reached by way of Picanum. He refused, however, to obey the order to lay aside his dagger when he approached the emperor, but fastened it to the scabbard with nails. Yet he knelt upon the ground and with arms crossed called him master and did obeisance. Nero admired him for this action and entertained him in many ways, especially by giving a gladiatorial exhibition at Puteoli. It was under the direction of Petrobius, one of his freedmen, who managed to make it a most brilliant and costly affair, as may be seen from the fact that on one of the days, not a person but Ethiopians, men, women, and children, appeared in the theatre. By way of showing Petrobius some fitting honour, Tiridates shot at wild beasts from his elevated seat and, if one can believe it, transfixed and killed two bulls with a single arrow. This account seems so bizarre that it is tempting to dismiss it as hopelessly unreliable and therefore not worth worrying about. But I think that it is, in fact, possible to make sense of events as Dio describes them and to get a glimpse of spectacle as an instrument of diplomacy and the strategy behind it. First, a little background, focusing exclusively on quarrels between Rome and Parthia as to which of them would control the throne of Armenia. Already in AD 35, King Artabanus of Parthia had installed one of his relatives as king of Armenia, an imperialist move that led to a formal meeting between Artabanus and Lucius Vitellius, governor of Syria, on a bridge over the Euphrates two years later. Both of them sacrificed to the regionary standards and to Augustus and the reigning emperor, conjuring, as it were, the presence of the imperial family. At this meeting, an agreement between Rome and Parthia that had been forged by Augustus in AD 1 was ratified in perpetuity, and the Romans were formally invested with the right to nominate the king of Armenia. But King Vologaises, who ascended to the throne of Parthia in 51, tried to install his brother Tiridates on the throne of Armenia one year later. This act of defiance led to extended diplomatic negotiations and military action, with losses on both sides. Domitius Corbulo, brother-in-law of the late Caligula and former governor of Asia, was sent out by Nero to command the troops and negotiate a settlement. In 58 or 60, the Romans put up their own nominee for the throne of Armenia, Tigranes, a Parthian prince who had been brought up in Rome. I'm sorry, they both have the same syllable for their names, but Tigranes is different from Tiridates. The choice for Rome boiled down to either securing Armenia for Tigranes by military force or accepting Tiridates as king with conditions. The latter is what happened. In the spring of 63, in the shadow of the Roman defeat at Randea, Corbulo managed to get Tiridates to deposit his diadem in front of a statue of Nero, which stood in for the emperor himself, akin to the way in which a cult statue stood in for a god. 
and Tiridates had to agree to travel to Rome to get his crown back. The evidence is in Tacitus. Tiridates traveled there. Animals were slaughtered in the ritual manner, and he removed the diadem from his head and laid it in front of the statue. Everyone showed considerable emotion, fueled by the slaughter and siege of Roman forces that were imprinted on their memory. But now the tables were turned. Would Tiridates, en route to Rome as a spectacle to the world, be tantamount to a captive? Volugaises was aware of precisely that danger. Tacitus reports the conditions that he demanded of Corbulo. Tiridates was not to endure any semblance of servitude, nor was he to hand over his sword or be kept from the embrace of provincial governors or be made to stop at the entrance to their houses. And at Rome, he was to receive the honor accorded to consuls. The visit that Tiridates made for this purpose three years later furnishes a blueprint for international diplomacy in action, orchestrating a delicate balance between Roman jingoism this was a prime opportunity for Nero to play to the Roman gallery, and deferential treatment suitable to foreign loyalty, royalty. The royal journey from the Euphrates to Rome was one of the most remarkable known to us from the ancient world. It took nine months because Tiridates traveled overland. The elder Pliny explains the problem Tiridates the Magus had come to him, that is to say Nero, supplying his own Armenian triumph and in the process laying a heavy burden on the provinces. He had refused to come under sail, for the Magi consider it unlawful to spit into the sea or defile nature by other functions necessary to mortal creatures. In other words, as a Zoroastrian, Tiridates could not and would not pollute the divine element of the sea with any form of bodily effluent. I should note in passing that he did sail from Brundisium to Dyrrachium on the way back, but since that crossing might take little more than a day, presumably it was short enough for him to refrain from such pollution so long as sufficient receptacles were supplied for everyone on board. On the outward journey, we can only imagine what Tiridates' progress was like. He was accompanied by 3,000 Parthian cavalry, plus a fleet of servants, family members, and various Romans. And according to Dio, they received an enthusiastic welcome en route, as we've just heard, presumably because, unlike the Roman army, which was billeted on the locals, Tiridates' expenses were underwritten by the Roman treasury at the rate of 800,000 sesterces per diem, although Pliny claims otherwise calling them a heavy burden on the provinces. We should also not underestimate the exotic spectacle formed by the Parthian train. And there's no whiff of humiliation in Dio's account. Tiridates is an impressive regal figure. And so was his wife, it is telling that Dio mentioned her, and fortunate that this detail survived into Zephylinus's epitome. This woman, wearing a diadem, appears on the reverse of some of the coins that Nero had minted for Tiridates, suggesting that even if not exactly a co-regent, she certainly played a role in governance that mattered to the Armenians and helped to legitimize Tiridates' position as king. Here she's depicted as a portrait head. 
and the scrappy Greek legends on both obverse and reverse will become clear when we look at the other coin that features her. Here the legends are more legible, although the Greek is imperfect. And I'd better point at this stage. So here, Basileus Girigates is presumably meant uh, to be uh, Tiridates, and Basilissa Cleopatra is his queen. She is shown as a seated figure, a bow in her right hand, an arrow in her left, and a bow case hanging at her side. These are military accoutrements that cohere with Dio's detail that she rode on horseback wearing a helmet in place of the veil that was required by Parthian custom to keep her face hidden. As has been observed by the numismatist Frank Kovacs, who's worked on this, Dio presents us with a picture of, I quote, a Parthian royal lady schooled in the martial arts and paraded before all to be seen as Tiridates' companion in arms, a sort of warrior queen. The coins, as we can see, give her name, Cleopatra. This is evidently intended as a patriotic reminiscence of the glory days of Tigranes the Great of Armenia, who reigned from 95 BC until his death in 55, and whose wife was also called Cleopatra. It is, however, notable that on Nero's coins, Tiridates' Cleopatra is neither veiled nor wearing a helmet. I have no explanation for this anomaly other than to suppose that there was a breakdown in communication when the coins were minted. It is worth dwelling briefly upon Tiridates' progress from the Euphrates to Italy to set the journey in its cultural context. I'm sure your geography is great, but anyway, um, we've got the uh, Euphrates and then, of course, we've got Rome and they're a long way apart. The procession, the pompe, is one of the characteristic features of Hellenistic culture. The examples described most vividly in our sources are the Dionysiac procession of Ptolemy II in Alexandria in 279 or 278 BC, complete with mechanical figures that could mimic human movements and an impressive parade of exotic animals and the procession of Antiochus IV at Daphne outside Antioch in Syria in 166 BC. Hellenistic processions are multi-day affairs that are all fundamentally religious in nature, but they also give prominence to the army, and they are clearly designed to impress and entertain spectators, since good viewpoints are sometimes explicitly mentioned. As with Ptolemy's procession, which passed through the stadium at Alexandria, and ambassadors among the spectators at Antiochus's procession were actually included in the procession itself. Tiridates may have styled his progress to Italy as a kind of nine-month pompe, a nine-month procession, accompanied as he was by 3,000 cavalry and courting spectators as he went. One can only imagine that the Hellenophile and ardently theatrical Nero leapt at the opportunity to underwrite this extravaganza. The most remarkable feature of the royal journey to Italy, however, is how it was conducted once the retinue got there. Within Italy itself, Tiridates no longer rode on horseback, but travelled in vehicles sent by Nero. Evidently, now that he was on Italian soil, he was to abandon his native mode of transport and travel as the Roman emperor decreed fitting. 
And crucially, instead of going straight to Rome, where he was to be crowned, he came down through Picenum en route to Naples. Why he did so and what he did when he got there constitute the prequel to the coronation. That prequel is the focus of my paper. Okay, he came down here. The Bay of Naples is not en route to Rome. Okay, just isn't uh, when you're coming from the north. And nor really is Picenum, which is over here. The most obvious route for Tiridates to have, been, to have taken would be down the Via uh, Popilia Ania, down there uh, to Fano, and then down the Via Flaminia to Rome, and thence down to Naples. But that would have cut out Picenum altogether, which encompasses roughly the coastal strip from Ancona to Pescara whereas Dio specifically says that he went through the territory of the Picentines. Doubtless, the Via Flaminia would have been quicker, but neither time nor money was the object. This was not meant to be a frugal affair. The mere fact of it making economic sense for Tiridates to go straight to Rome and stay there would be reason enough for the Romans to take him the long way round and then send him on a further detour after nine months at 800,000 sesterces per day, a few more days' journey would in financial terms be neither here nor there. No expense spared was an important message to give the Parthians. So what did the route through Picenum involve, and why did Nero arrange for Tiridates to go that way? He must have gone down the coast and then taken one of the three routes that connected the Adriatic seaboard with Rome. The most likely one, in my opinion, is the Via Claudia Valeria, okay, the southernmost one. It's effectively encompassing the waste of the peninsula, if you imagine the peninsula having a waste. If I may be forgiven for using an American analogy on this side of the Atlantic, one could rightly call the stretch from the Fusine Lake to Rome the U.S. Route 66 of ancient Italy. This I contend, is a particularly apt analogy in that Route 66 runs from Chicago west to Santa Monica. And so we have to think of an extension from Chicago east to New York to join the two coasts. And that is precisely what we need to think about in Tiridates' case. Because in 66, AD 66, that is, the extension of the Via Valeria from the Fusine Lake, uh, from Kerfenia to be precise, to the mouth of the Eternus, Ostia Eterni was very new, barely 17 years old. And this is Ostia Eterni here. It had been built by Claudius in 48 or 49 and hence named the Via Claudia Valeria, as is immortalized on a milestone from near Teate Marocinorum, displaying incidentally one of Claudius's short lived additions to the Latin alphabet standing for the consonantal V, and I've highlighted it in yellow. It would have been more sensible to highlight it in green, but you can see what looks like an upside-down back-to-front F, most likely a digamma, is Claudius's invention, and it did not survive him, alas. This road uh, powered straight across Mons Emmaus through Corfinium and into Promium to the coast. It must have displayed the most modern engineering, spanking new milestones, Nitumbones, Roman road building at its up-to-date best. 
the trip down the coast road to Ostia Aterni will have showcased the astonishing length of the Italian seaboard, astonishing at least to someone like Tiridates, who must have spent most of his life inland and was a devotee of water. And then the display of modern engineering, scaling first the Emmaus and then the Apennines, will have deposited the royal train within sight of the Tyrrhenian Sea in a matter of days. With the assistance of the Stanford website Orbis, I estimate that for an unencumbered traveller, the journey from Ostia Eterni to Rome might have taken little more than a week. Okay. Though for Tiridates, travelling with more than 3,000 people, it probably took longer. Possibly the royal progress even skirted Rome, since their goal in the first instance was the Bay of Naples, where Nero met them, a part of Italy to which the emperor was very much attached. It is surely of deep significance that Nero chose not Rome but Naples to receive Tiridates. However fond he was of that sybaritic part of the world, there's much more than sentiment at stake here. For one thing, given the Parthian veneration of water, it is appropriate that Nero should meet Tiridates in an impressive maritime location rather than up the grubby Tiber at Rome. But if Tiridates had little or no experience of living by the sea, he did have intimate experience of a different natural feature to boast about, since the royal capital of Armenia was located at the foot of Mount Ararat the largest mountain in that part of the world for hundreds of kilometers. It stands just inside what is now Turkey on the border with Armenia. I think that this 19th century painting captures its ethereal grandeur better than any photograph could do. But even more telling, perhaps, is the presence of the mountain on Armenian coinage, as on this coin of Tigranes IV, where it incontestably expresses national sentiment and pride. The Bay of Naples, that's a mountain there. Okay. The Bay of Naples enables Nero to go one better. This stunning maritime location has its mountain too, Vesuvius, not yet exploded, of course, in the eruption that would kill the elder Pliny in 79, and an icon of Bacchic fertility, as this painting from the House of the Centenary at Pompeii attests. It stands sentinel over the Bay of Naples, visible directly opposite Pozzuoli, gently smoking in a faintly menacing manner in this 19th century German watercolour. But it is also significant that Nero received Tiridates in a Greek city. Naples seems never to have lost her Greek identity as a Euboean colony. Her separate character is visible in all sorts of unexpected ways, such as the complete absence of any reference to Naples in the graffiti at Pompeii, which mentions scores of other places nearby. It seems clear that Greek was the international language of the Roman Empire, and hence of diplomatic exchanges between Parthia and Rome. Indeed, Greek was one of the languages of the Parthian Empire too, as is well attested in Parthian epigraphy, even if, as we've just seen, their coin legends in Greek were a bit hit and miss. Receiving Tiridates in a Greek city was surely making a point that the Romans were as cosmopolitan as the Parthians and would also acknowledge common cultural ground between Nero and his honoured guest. Diplomacy, by definition, requires attention to the sensibilities of the other party. Dio, unfortunately, doesn't tell us what Nero and Tiridates did in Naples. Possibly they engaged in that very Greek cultural exercise, a visit to the gymnasium or maybe they simply wined and dined. 
but the major event of Tiridate's reception was staged at Puteoli. This was a quintessentially Roman spectacle, a gladiatorial show, for which Greek Naples apparently had no customized venue, though I think that there are more positive reasons for Nero to hold the event next door in Puteoli, other than just the absence of a suitable Neapolitan location. If you've seen the epigraphic collection in the Aragon Castle at Baiae, you'd have been struck, as I was, by the number of inscriptions in Aramaic and other Oriental languages. Puteoli, as a port city, truly was cosmopolitan. It was the second city in Italy after Rome, and even after Nero turned Claudius's basin at Ostia into a functioning harbour, indeed until Trajan made significant alterations to that basin, Puteoli remained the gateway to Italy for travellers approaching by sea. Most crucially, the diplomatic gateway. Philo disembarked there, for instance, on his frustrating embassy to Caligula at Rome. And it was also the first port of call for the grain fleet from Egypt. This wall painting from Stabiae, now in the Naples Museum, is thought to represent the harbour of Puteoli. It certainly gives a vivid impression of crowding, oops, sorry, and busyness. Seneca uh, has a memorial, a moralizing description of the arrival of the fleet's advance guard in which he gives a similarly vivid impression of the energy of the place. The Alexandrian ships have suddenly made their appearance today. The ones usually sent ahead to announce the approach of the fleet which follows them, they call them messenger ships. They are a welcome sight to the Campani. The whole crowd of people at Puteoli stands on the dock and from the actual type of sails recognizes the Alexandrians, even in a great crowd of ships, for they are the only ones allowed to fly a topsail, which all ships have among the, above the mainsail. In this rush of everyone hustling to the shore, I felt a great pleasure from my own laziness, because although I was expecting letters from my friends, I did not hurry to find out the condition of my affairs and what news they were bringing, for it is a long time since I have experienced any material loss or profit. It is telling that the harbour mole at Puteoli is the subject of two epigrams preserved in the garland of Philip, one by Antiphilus and the other by Philip himself. The garland may have been published under Caligula. In other words, these epigrams testify to civic pride in Puteoli at the right period for us. These are the only epigrams about a harbour mole in the entire Greek anthology. Here is Antiphilus's, uh, following uh, the question and answer form common in epigram. Dikaiakia is the personification of Puteoli. Tell me, Dikaiakia, why have you thrown such a great mole into the water, touching the middle of the ocean? It was the hands of the Cyclopes that planted those walls in the sea. How far earth must we suffer your violence? And the answer, I am harbour to the world's fleet. Look at neighbouring Rome and see whether my harbour me measures up to hers. So the honourand of Antiphilus's epigram is Puteoli herself, said to be the equal of Rome in the realm of breakwaters. And uh, Philip's epigram, um, on the other hand, focuses on the paradox that the sea, quintessentially unstable, is now as firm as land. With a fool's audacity, the barbarian yoked the Hellespont, but time has undone all those great labors. Now Dikaiakia has made the sea a mainland and has reformed the deep to the shape of the land. She has planted monstrous stones, a deep foundation, 
and with giant's hands she has put the waters in their place below. The sea was always for sailing, inconstant when crossed by sailors. It has agreed to stay firm for those on foot. Beyond Puteoli's prestige, however, I think there is some diplomatic subtlety in having Tiridates meet Nero on the Bay of Naples. The Romans respected Parthian scruples and accommodated Tiridates' refusal to sail, but they still needed to treat him like any other foreigner arriving in Italy from the east by greeting him at Puteoli, the foreign traveller's first lasting foothold on Italian soil. It is, I suppose, conceivable that plans were already underway for a grand reception at Puteoli before Nero grasped that Tiridates was not going to come that way. And once it was clear that he would arrive over land from the north rather than by sea round the toe of Italy, it might have been too late for Nero to change the arrangements. But that seems to me very unlikely. The Romans had had nearly three years to plan the event, ever since Tiridates had deposited his crown in front of Nero's statue in 63. It seems to me most likely that it was decided from the very beginning that Puteoli was the right place to receive a foreign dignitary on Italian soil. And a catastrophe early in the planning process vindicated that choice, the great fire at Rome in the summer of 64. However energetically the Romans rebuilt the city of Rome in conformity with the strict new fire codes that Nero introduced. In 66, much of the centre probably still looked like a massive building site. Most crucially, there was nowhere suitable to put on a gladiatorial display, that quintessentially Roman mode of entertainment. The amphitheatre of Statilius Taurus down by the Tiber seems to have been too small for anything grand, and Nero's wooden amphitheatre had burnt down in the Great Fire. So for a custom-built space, the emperor had to go elsewhere. Where better than Puteoli, the most impressive city in Italy outside Rome? Dio, uh, you may recall, uh, speaks of a theatre, by which he presumably means hunting theatre, one of the regular Greek terms for that very Roman structure, an amphitheatre. Where exactly in Puteoli was the show put on? The large amphitheatre that dominates Puteoli uh, today, Pozzuoli today, is inscribed Colonia Flavia Augusta Puteolana in several places and has therefore always been assumed to date from the Flavian period, 69 to 96. But there is another candidate. That's the big one there. There's this little guy here uh, to the northeast. That's probably Augustan and only came to light in 1914 when the express railway line from Rome to Naples was being laid. It was quite a substantial building, though smaller than its successor. Here are the dimensions. The axes of the earlier building were approximately 130 by 95 meters, as opposed to those of its Flavian successor, which measure 149 by 116 meters. And for comparison, the axes of the Colosseum at Rome are 188 by 156 meters. Oops, what's happened? Go back a minute. Panic over. Until the 1970s, it might have been assumed that the smaller structure must be the venue for Nero's display. 
And in 1975, an inscription was published that attests gladiatorial games given by a certain Lucius Cassius Cerealis, who'd held a string of positions at Puteoli and evidently received a statue in return for his generosity. You can see that this inscription had suffered damnatio memoriae. Look at those rubbings out, okay? And there too. A pronoun and an emperor's name are required in the two gaps at the beginning of lines 5 and 6, and there's a further erasure at the end of line 5. Plus, because the inscription's broken off at the right, we don't have the ends of any of the lines. Of the two candidates for the emperor who's been erased, a Caligula can be discarded because the lettering doesn't fit the style in his reign, so the other candidate must win, and that is Nero. To Lucius Cassius Cerealis, son of Lucius of the Palatine tribe, Praefectus Fabrum, Quista, first official in charge of public works, Duumvir, Duumvir Quinquinalis, official in charge of the Aqua Augusta, when he put on a gladiatorial show for, presumably, Nero, Kaiser Augustus, in the amphitheatre, the entire populace voted this monument to him. Cassia Kale erected it for her most dutiful son, the site being granted by decree of the Decurians. It has been suggested that this gladiatorial show was put on to honour Nero at the dedication of the new amphitheatre, the one that's subsequently called Flavian. It seems to have been common for the Romans to dedicate large buildings as soon as they were usable, without waiting for the absolutely final touches. That's certainly what happened at the Colosseum. If it happened at Puteoli, too, it's easy to see why, when the final inscriptions on the building were completed, it had morphed into a Flavian structure. Damnatio memoriae again. Now that it was impossible to mention Nero, simply give the credit for the structure to the dynasty that finished it, the Flavians. It's even been suggested that the occasion of the dedication was precisely Tiridate's visit. This is the uh, Camodeca, the um, Italian archaeologist interested in this building. But uh, that can't be right, I think, unless the dedication ceremony sponsored by Cerealis was entirely separate from the games to showcase Tiridates, which are the only ones that Dio mentions and were put on by Nero's freedman Petrobius. It's been estimated that the completed structure could accommodate 35,000 spectators. Even if the upper tiers of seating were not finished in 66, it will still have occupied a huge space and held an enormous number of people. The Parthians didn't have buildings quite like that. Dio emphasizes that the show at Puteoli was put on by a freedman. This emphasis suggests to me that Petrobius's identity was made very public at the time, which is confirmed by Dio's claim that Tiridates specifically wanted to honor Petrobius and accordingly performed the bull feat that I'll come to in a minute. I therefore assume that the emphasis on Petrobius's identity stems from Nero himself, and that he intended to demonstrate to Tiridates how wealthy and entrepreneurial his dependents were, given that Petrobius's display was, in Dio's words, a most brilliant and costly affair. If manumission was unusual in Parthia, as I understand to have been the case, the Roman freedman class may well have been a feature of Roman society that Nero was keen to display a kind of third estate between servile and freeborn, and a category of persons who could amass great wealth and have great influence in society, even if they did not have the status of freeborn Romans. If the prominence of Petrobius was a deliberate strategy to highlight the flexibility and potential of the freedman class, 
This again suggests that a lot of effort had gone into identifying what had impressed Tiridates and then incorporating it into his reception. But there may also be an administrative reason why it was Petrobius who put on the games for Nero's reception of Tiridates at Puteoli. Putting on games seems to have been a job that Nero liked giving freedmen to do. On another occasion, he had a freedman of his put on games in Anzio. Quite possibly, these freedmen occupied the post of Armuneribus, which seems to have been associated with the mounting of spectacles. Some of the gladiatorial graffiti at Pompeii identify cartoon figures of gladiators with the letters N-E-R in front of these Roman numerals up here. And those letters may stand for Neronis or Neronianus, suggesting that Nero kept a troop nearby, perhaps at Capua, where he may ultimately have inherited gladiators from the barracks owned by Julius Caesar. If so, this occasion was presumably the biggest break of Petrobius' career. The show itself that is recorded by Dio is unique in the history of Roman spectacle as far as we know. On one day, presumably it was a multi-day affair, the participants included women and children as well as men, and they were all Ethiopians. In other words, they were black. I have underlined the verb SL thing uh, in the uh, text and the translation near the end of the passage to make it easy for you to find it. On the assumption that Ethiopian simply means foreign, this term has been taken variously to refer to the spectators, would have included the 3,000 Parthians attending Tiridates, as well as Romans. But es erhomai is a technical term for appearing on the stage, and so it must refer to the participants, not the audience. And Ethiopian presumably means from Ethiopia, not just foreign. The site obviously would have been remarkable. Presumably all these Ethiopians must have been acquired via the slave trade, since as far as I know there was no recent campaign in those parts to supply them. Sometime uh, in, uh, between 61 and 63, Nero had sent a tribune with a detachment of Praetorians up the Nile to look for its source, and they got as far as that. Incredible. <clears throat> they were not conducting a military campaign, so they will not have taken prisoners of war, but the expedition would have been an ideal opportunity for fostering trading networks and may even have been connected with a long-term plan to supply black participants for Nero's spectacles. I imagine that Tiridates may not have seen many black people before, though we can't be sure because of the slave trade up the Persian Gulf. At any, any rate, if the identification of Parthia with Persia meant that Persia's notorious failure uh, to conquer Ethiopia was still smarting in the Parthian consciousness, this may have been a very deliberate display on Nero's part. We can control Ethiopia. It was not only race that Nero could manipulate, but also gender and age. He'd already displayed women in the arena at least twice, the first Roman emperor to do so. The first occasion, which might seem a bit uh, inappropriate, was the funeral games for his mother Agrippina, whom he's supposed to have murdered, um, and it's reported in scandalized tones by Dio. There was another exhibition that was most disgraceful and most shocking, when men and women, not only of the equestrian, but even of the senatorial order, appeared as performers in the orchestra, in the circus, and in the amphitheater, like people who are held in the lowest esteem. Some of them played the flute, 
and danced in pantomimes or acted in tragedies and comedies or sang to the lyre. They drove horses, killed wild beasts and fought as gladiators, some voluntarily and some very much against their will. The second occasion on which Nero displayed women in the arena was in AD 63, attested in an example of Tacitus's devastating Simeon concision. Gladiatorial shows were as magnificent as ever this year, but in the arena, more noble women and senators were sullied for dati sunt. As far as I'm aware, Petropius's games are the first occasion in the Roman world on which children appear in the arena in an official display. Although if Augustus's seating regulations applied to the amphitheatre as well as the theatre, they'd long been eligible to watch from the stands. When Africans are attested in the arena, as they were in games organised by Sulla as early as 93 BC, they were drafted to hunt animals, since they were expert in doing this. On that occasion, they were supplied by King Bacchus of Mauritania to hunt lion. My guess is that all Nero's Ethiopians, including the children, were used for the same purpose of hunting animals native to their home territory. Admittedly, Dio calls the display monomachiae, the technical term in Greek for gladiatorial combat, and he doesn't break it down into further categories. So we have actually no real evidence that anything beyond gladiatorial combat was involved. The early amphitheatre at Puteoli had no hypogeum, that is to say no basement, to facilitate beast displays. But the so-called Flavian amphitheatre has a very elaborate basement. For a series of games over several days, it seems very likely that beasts were included, not least because the supply route from Africa was immediately accessible at Puteoli. Plus, at least one person was involved in a venatio on this occasion, and that is, of course, Tiridates himself. He shot at wild beasts, Teria, from the platform where he was positioned and is said to have performed the amazing feat of shooting two bulls with the same arrow, though Dio does not believe this. And nor did I, until I contacted the Harvard Archery Club whose coach gave me the following sobering statistics about Asian hunting bows, which are similar to the bow that Tiridates would have had. They carry what he calls an incredible poundage, anywhere from 45 pounds upwards, which would be necessary to penetrate the hide, ribs, and cardiac area for a humane kill. The Harvard coach then went on to speculate about Tiridates' chances of pulling off this feat, saying, I quote, the king may have been such a strong man that he was able to pull back a very large amount of weight, maybe 70 pounds, and at close range it may have been possible that the bulls were aligned just right and a sharp arrow pierced first one and then the other. My informant further suggests that the shot could have been aimed at the neck area where there would be less mass for an arrow to travel through when it hit the first bull, with the result that it could still have had enough power to mortally wound the second bull. The famous tiled frieze of Achaemenid archers from the palace of Darius I at Susa conjures up the right atmosphere, I think. Clearly, then, we should not dismiss out of hand the possibility that the whole event was stage-managed to redound Tiridates's credit. Dio, or his source, makes a sharp distinction between teria, wild beasts, and tauroi, bulls, in this passage, 
which further supports the idea that the bulls were specially introduced and handled to give Tiridates the opportunity to show off his native expertise. Domesticated bulls would be easier to line up as targets than wild animals, and their size would be concomitant with a feat of remarkable strength on the king's part. The Parthians were renowned above all for their archery, not least for being able to shoot backwards over their shoulders, the origin of our expression Parthian shot, often mistaken, of course, for parting shot. The archer is the most frequent emblem on the reverse of Parthian coins. Here is Valugaises, with his diadem tied very securely at the back of his head. An enormous earring and his, there's his earring, and his neck talk. And here is the archer with his bow, which is longer than his arm. It looks as though it's resting on a trestle table, but this would give entirely the wrong impression. Uh, no Parthian archer would be such a weakling as to be unable to hold up his own weapon. The trestle table look-alike is actually a monogram, probably representing the die engraver rather than the date of issue. And here is another example, minus monogram, with a Greek legend of dubious legibility proclaiming Valogaisi's lord. You may, with some imagination, be able to make out Kiri, and there's no Omicron there in front of the Upsilon. Archery is the Parthian royal accomplishment par excellence. At Puteoli, Tiridates both consumed the spectacle as a spectator and produced it as a participant, just as Nero both produced it via his surrogate Petrobius and consumed it, watching Tiridates perform his exploit. There were 3,000 Parthians in the audience as well as all the Roman spectators. The two constituencies may have viewed Tiridates' exploit differently. For him to have performed it, he must have felt that he was distinguishing himself and displaying the supreme physical prowess of his race. The Romans must have known about the Paradisoi, the hunting, hunting parks of Persian royalty. They created an artificial one in the arena at Puteoli for Tiridates to perform his exploit, tactfully substituting bulls for the wild animals that might have been a greater challenge for him to shoot and kill. But archery was not a Roman activity. Romans fought with the sword, not with bows and arrows. Tiridates' exploit was impressive, but perhaps simultaneously proof of an almost contemptible otherness, another show in the arena to tickle the jaded Roman palate. Nero did not give Puteoli its first grant of colonial status, as used to be thought. That is now datable to the reign of Augustus but he enhanced its stature, as reflected in the incorporation of his own name into its titulature, Colonia Claudia Augusta Neronensis Puteolana. He also located one of his most ambitious projects there, the construction of a canal 160 Roman miles long between Lake Avernus and Ostia. And uh, starting from what his his uh, architects promised to do. They promised to dig a navigable canal from Lake Avernus to Ostia, along barren coast or else through mountain barriers, with nothing to generate water except the Pontine marshes. The rest was steep and dry, and if pierceable, the effort was unendurable and the reason insufficient. Nero, however, coveting the incredible, endeavoured to excavate the ridge nearest Avernus. Traces of his vain hope remain. This plan was not a silly as it appears at first sight. 
There were still vestiges visible near the lake in Tacitus's day. It is tempting to suppose that at the time of Tiridates' visit, the project had not yet been abandoned and that Nero might have shown it off to him. And if we're going down the primrose path of speculation, we might as well become reckless and probe the associations of all those black bodies in the amphitheatre at Puteoli. In particular, since the hypogeum of the large amphitheatre is estimated by at least some archaeologists to be original to the building, and hence probably Neronian, the beasts and their hunters may have appeared by magic from underground. At all events, the chthonic associations of the colour black, whether or not the participants appeared from underneath, immediately suggest to me, and would surely have done to the eminently suggestible Nero, a trip to Lake Avernus next door to show Tiridates the entrance to the netherworld and simultaneously boast about the incipient canal to Ostia. The eerie puffs of sulphur escaping from the ground on the Solfatara above Puteoli, captured here by Philippe Hackett in 1803, would have conjured up the right atmosphere on a royal progress to the entrance to Hades. After all, as I've already noted, we have to account for Dyer's remark that Nero entertained Tiridates in many ways before he specifies the gladiatorial display at Puteoli. And there's one final impulse to be considered in Nero's choice of the Bay of Naples to stage Tiridates' welcome. It relates to his reputation, Nero's reputation at home, damaged by the vicissitudes suffered by the region, two earthquakes and two riots, and by his self-inflicted harm on his own reputation as being the site of the murder of his mother and the homicide of his wife, Papia. The kudos accruing to Nero for his lavish reception of his Parthian guest may have been part of his calculation in the hope that it would offset the disasters and scandals associated with this area that had been laid at his door. And precisely this point is made by one of the very few scholars to even mention this prequel in Puteoli, namely the late Martin Fredrickson. Otherwise, this episode is ignored in favour of the greater spectacle of the coronation at Rome, which I am not going to describe, but it was big. If the interlude at Puteoli enabled the Parthian king to show off his skill, the sequel to the coronation ceremony at Rome was Nero's chance to shine. And here is how he used the opportunity according to Dio. Such then was this occasion, and of course they had a costly banquet. Afterwards Nero sang publicly to the lyre and also drove a chariot clad in the costume of the Greens and wearing a charioteer's helmet. This made Tiridates disgusted with him. But he praised Corbulo, in whom he found only this one fault, that he would put up with such a master. Indeed, he made no concealment of his views, even to Nero himself, but said to him one day, Master, you have in Corbulo a good slave. But this remark fell on uncomprehending ears. In all other matters, he flattered the emperor and ingratiated himself most skillfully, with the result that he received all kinds of gifts, said to have been worth 200 million sesterces and obtained permission to rebuild Artaxata. Moreover, he took with him from Rome many artisans, some of whom he got from Nero, and some of whom he persuaded by offers of high wages. Corbulo himself would not let them all cross into Armenia, but only those whom Nero had given him. This caused Tiridates both to admire him and to despise the emperor more than ever. The king did not return by the route that he'd followed in coming, through Illyricum and north of the Ionian Sea, but instead he sailed from Brindisi to Dyrrachium. He viewed also the cities of Asia 
which served to increase his amazement at the strength and beauty of the Roman Empire. So Nero used this precious opportunity to play the lyre in public and put on a racing helmet and race a chariot. If Tiridates' performance in the arena at Puteoli struck some Romans as unbecoming, that is exactly what the king himself thought of Nero's performance in Rome. Dio is in no doubt that the moral victory went to Tiridates. The political victory, too, went to Parthia, since they now had a Parthian prince on the throne of Armenia. But Nero played this as a major triumph in international relations, having coins minted with his corpulent self on the obverse and on the reverse, the doors of the Temple of Janus firmly shut. The legend proudly claims that the Roman people had obtained peace throughout the world and the doors of Janus had been closed. As far away as Aphrodisias in Caria, in southeastern Turkey, the the Sebasteon, the grand building honoring the Roman emperors, featured the subjugation of two Roman provinces that form an interesting contrast. On the left, Nero, now headless, is supporting the personification of a wounded Armenia, modeled on an earlier sculptural group of Achilles and the Amazon queen Penthesilea, whereas on the right, Claudius is about to strike Britannia, a reference to his conquest of Britain in AD 43, an event so momentous that he even replayed it in miniature on the campus martius afterwards for the benefit of the Romans at home who'd not experienced the glorious achievement at first hand. The personifications are labelled in Greek on the base. Claudius's brutal pose is in striking contrast to the portrayal of Nero, whose mastery over Armenia, although unmistakable, is tempered by empathy. Perhaps this reflects a different rhetoric emanating from the capital about the status of these two erstwhile enemies of the Roman people. There is a certain balance and reciprocity in the orchestration of the entire saga of Tiridates' coronation that makes it very hard to say whether the Romans or the Parthians won the diplomatic engagement. But I think it's worth trying to find the logic behind what at first sight might seem a costly and pointless detour, or even an example of a diplomatic error based on the false assumption that a visiting dignitary would take the same route as everybody else. That, I'm sure, was not the case here, and I hope to have shown that the route prescribed for Tiridates down the east coast of Italy and across the Apennines, along the newest road in the empire, was designed to impress Tiridates with Italy's long coastline and the Roman skill at engineering before depositing him in the breathtaking landscape of the Bay of Naples, complete with mountain, sea, and ghostly emanations from the underworld. To conclude, I want to try and tally the diplomatic added value of the piece de resistance of the Campanian leg of Tiridates' visit. First and foremost, the spectacle at Puteoli is quintessentially Roman. This is an important counterbalance to the very exotic and orientalizing coronation with its strongly Mithraic character. Gladiatorial combat is in that sense the Roman equivalent of tribal dancing, what every visitor needs to be made to see. One might object that Nero could just as well have staged a gladiatorial display in Rome, but actually he couldn't, or only in a makeshift venue, since there was no suitable amphitheatre in Rome in 66. Puteoli, on the other hand, was furnished with at least one amphitheatre at this date, even if we cannot be absolutely certain that the so-called Flavian one was already built. 
although it's very tempting to think that Keriolis' games took place in it at its inauguration. To display wild beasts, it was not absolutely essential to have a hypogeum, although that made it much easier. And if Tiridates was entertained in the Flavian, so-called Flavian amphitheatre, that amenity would have made a point about Roman mastery of engineering and technology and complemented the chthonic associations of Avernus and the whole Solfatara area that formed the backdrop to the city. The spectacle at Puteoli also made a strong statement about the reach of Rome's empire, especially the day with the all-black cast, as it were. Puteoli was really the port of all Italy and extremely cosmopolitan, and Nero's games reflected that cosmopolitanism in both its human participants and presumably the wild animals that Dio mentions alongside the pair of bulls supplied for Tiridates to finish off. But we shouldn't forget that the display was actually put on by Petrobius. As a visiting monarch, Tiridates was very interested in Nero's relations with his staff, as is illustrated by his famous remark about Corbulo as Nero's slave. Doubtless, the spectacle of Puteoli afforded him insight into the role played by Friedman in the emperor's administration. The practice of manumission must have been one of the most singular features of Roman society to a foreigner from the East, where it was not nearly so pronounced. Petrobius may have been a native of Puteoli, or at least stationed there. Nero had a troop of gladiators somewhere on the Bay of Naples, judging from the gladiatorial graffiti at Pompeii. Two years earlier, the odious Vatinius, a native of Benevento, had put on a gladiatorial show in honour of Nero when the emperor was passing through his city, evidently an honorific gesture from a local dignitary to a visiting monarch. Now it's Petrobius's turn as Nero's surrogate to entertain an oriental potentate in this way. Even from the little we know about the occasion, it is clear that the diplomats on both sides had done their homework, and they each orchestrated their own part in it to make the maximum impact on everyone else, including their fellow countrymen. Tiridates' entourage must have been delighted by the bull feet, and Nero was clearly as concerned to impress the Romans with his reception of the allegedly subservient Tiridates as he was to impress Tiridates himself with his over-the-top hospitality and upla. But it was still possible to make mistakes. We cannot be sure whether the Romans received Tiridates' bull feet with admiration or with condescension. Clearly, however, Nero's corresponding feat did not make the impression on Tiridates that Nero must have intended. Our knowledge of this episode relies exclusively on a flimsy passage in a medieval epitome of a Greek source written nearly two centuries after the event, and it is patently hostile to Nero. But if we peel back the layers, this episode gives us a remarkable opportunity to see how two ancient forms of spectacle a royal progress from Asia to Europe, and a mass entertainment a la Romaine, could be deployed as a tool of diplomacy, at least when orchestrated by such consummate showmen as King Tiridates and the Emperor Nero, the latter a match for the former in flamboyance, if not in regal dignity. Thank you. Thank you.